This rarely talked about yet legendary lawman who began his life as a slave is known to have brought more than 3,000 thieves and bandits to justice in his lifetime career as a U.S. Marshal, and what a collection of stories he has. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Bass Reeves was born in July of 1838 and for his entire youth was the slave of Arkansas state legislator William Steele Reeves, and then he was willed to Reeves' son, George, after William's passing. He would be loaned out to serve others in such capacities as blacksmiths and butlers, but eventually earned the station of his master's companion, much like a valet, thus giving his entire family a higher ranking among the slave hierarchy, allowing his family to take their meals inside the master's big house. He would listen and mimic the way his master's family would speak and would later ask if he would be allowed to learn to read. He told William Reeves that he wanted to be able to read his Bible. His request was declined, so Bass continued to listen and develop his vocabulary. Instead of reading, the Reeves family decided it would be better for young Bass to learn about firearms. <laughs> he had a quick eye and fast reflexes and caught on quickly. His master would enter him into turkey shoots, and eventually he was so good he was no longer allowed to participate. In 1861, George Reeves would become a colonel during the Civil War, and because father trusted his faithful servant, so did the son. During this time, Bass not only became a superior marksman, but also an expert horseman. With these skills, he would not only serve as valet and protector, but was also known to ride alongside with his master into battle. But then, one evening, an argument escalated beyond the temperament of the usually calm and collected slave companion. He would beat his master unconscious, an offense punishable by death. He would flee deep into Indian territory to escape. By crossing the Red River, finding refuge living with the Seminoles and Creek Indians, he eventually became close friends with the Creek chief. By 1862, he would fight in the Civil War on the Union side following many of the tribes. Bass Reeves would hide out among the tribes in the area and they protected him. He would make an effort to learn their languages and customs and before long, well, one, he never got caught, and two, became an ally to the Native Americans. Total side note. In 1882, while visiting his home, Colonel George Reeves was bitten by a rabid dog. Reeves' family would say that he saw a young child in danger from the rabid animal, so he jumped off his horse to protect said child when he got bit. Depending on how quickly the disease spreads, death usually occurs 2 to 10 days from the first show of symptoms. In Reeves' final days, he was placed in a wooden shed padded with mattresses to protect him from the potential self-inflicted violent tendencies associated with the disease. Many of the side effects deal with the brain, including hallucinations, insomnia, confusion, inflammation of the brain, and fear of water, leading to 
refusing to drink water, but also never being able to quench their thirst, causing a person to slip further into madness. He eventually died of hydrophobia in September of 1882. By the end of the Civil War, Bass Reeves, of course, was a free man. He chose to settle in Van Buren, Arkansas, bringing his mother, sister, wife, and ten children, becoming a farmer and a rancher. For an additional side hustle, he would act as a guide to law enforcers coming through the area and requesting help to navigate the Indian Territory. His reputation preceded him, and although he had no intentions of wearing a badge, per se, his name kept coming up in the conversation. Finally, when President Ulysses S. Grant sent infamous Judge Isaac Parker, eventually known as the Hanging Judge, to the Arkansas-Oklahoma Territories to get it under control in 1875, they were determined to make a change. Arkansas was by this time a state, but Oklahoma was still the lawless nation referred to as Indian Territory. Once Isaac Parker took on the crime, he made some unprecedented changes to common practices of law and order. He agreed to accept this new position on one condition, that none of his rulings could be overturned or appealed. So if he said you hanged, you hanged. And chances were high, depending on the crime, that the criminals brought into his court would not be leaving again. This required a lot of grit from a deputy. On top of that, the terrain was unforgiving. You could go for miles without seeing another human, and if you didn't know where to find water sources, it could be deadly. Also on that note, if you didn't know the ins and outs of the terrain, you could be a sitting duck for an ambush. According to Chris Wimmer of Black Barrel Media, during the time that Law & Order was trying to settle the Indian Territory, about 22,000 whites lived among the various tribes, and about 75% of them were criminals. It's said that over 100 deputies were killed in the 20 years of the judge's appointment. While the laws of post-Civil War America would not be permitted to interfere with Indian versus Indian squabbles, they were allowed and pretty much required to deal with the hundreds of outlaws that would attempt to hide out in the ungoverned area. With his motto of, quote, Permit no innocent man to be punished, but let no guilty man escape, end quote, Isaac C. Parker would be just the man for the job. And now he needed to round up a few good men, as in 200 or so, to cover the more than 75,000 square miles of territory to bring these criminals to justice. It was not an easy thing to do. Parker would comment in an article for the St. Louis Globe, quote, The principal business of the court is of a criminal nature. Very few criminal offenses come from the state of Arkansas, but they are principally from the Indian country, this being the only United States court which exercises any jurisdiction over that country. Offenders in offenses of all kinds there are brought to this court for trial. The fact is that murders and outrages that are committed in that country are committed principally by white desperados, refugees from justice from the state of Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, and other states of the Union, end quote. In his vision for the 200, he says, quote, I think the main objective to be attained is to make life and property secure in the Indian country, regardless of expense, and while it is the duty of every officer in the court to practice the most rigid economy, 
yet enough expense should be incurred to bring every violator of the law to justice. End quote. Enter Bass Reeves. He was six foot two and solidly built. He would tower over most men and was considered extremely strong and deadly with a weapon. James Fagan, the first of the two hundred appointed by Parker, would seek out Reeves. Because Reeves was a crack shot, could speak the languages of most of the Native American tribes, was considered a man of high integrity with the tribes, and he knew Indian territory like, quote, a cook knows her kitchen, end quote, Fagan wouldn't take no for an answer. Bass Reeves is believed to be the first African-American deputy marshal commissioned west of the Mississippi River and held that title with pride. Early on in his career, 1883, he made a name for himself by arresting both Bell and Sam Starr for horse thievery. If you want to hear that whole story, check out episode 19, all about the bandit queen. But you will not find that Bell Starr went along peacefully. She was not the least bit intimidated by the famed Bass Reeves. She was quite the wildcat. I'm sure making all involved sorry they accepted the warrant in the first place. But oh, what a name to have on your resume. Hello, hello. Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. One paper would tout his skill by printing, quote, Place a warrant for arrest in his hands and no circumstance can cause him to deviate, end quote. He was the stuff of legends. Being the Wild West's version of a superhero, he was a man of honor. He was a man of dedication. Let those be warned that if they broke the law, Reeves would find you and arrest you. It didn't matter who you were or what your crime was. He famously proved that to be the case when he arrested the very minister that baptized him for the charge of selling illegal liquor. In his career, he would be known to bring in over 3,000 men to justice with only 14 making up the dead in Wanted, Dead, or Alive. The Muskogee Phoenix would write, quote, Bass Reeves always said that he never shot a man when it was not necessary for him to do so in the discharge of his duty to save his own life, end quote. To those who passed on his stories would claim that he was fearless. The Oklahoma City Times Journal would write, quote, Reeves was never known to show the slightest excitement under any circumstances. He does not know what fear is, end quote. He was a hard man. 
He was uncompromising when it came to doing his job. He took his oath very seriously and honed his skills to make him a man to contend with. An honest man, but also full of life. Chris Wimmer would tell of someone who spoke highly of the man, saying, quote, He liked to tell jokes. He had a thunderous and booming laugh. He had a deep, resonant voice that could be authoritative when it had to be, and reassuring at the same time, end quote. One story that was widely talked about was the time when Reeves had warrants for horse thieves Frank Buck and John Brewer, who were Creek Native Americans. Not familiar with the area, wink wink, Reeves accidentally hired these men as guides. When they stopped for a noon meal, Reeves noticed Bruner slowly draw his gun. Bass Reeves grabbed the gun from John and simultaneously fired at Buck, killing him. Needless to say, he took John in to claim his reward at Fort Smith, Arkansas. Art T. Burton of Lest We Forget website says, quote, Reeves always wore a large black hat with a straight trim that was slightly upturned in the front. He was particularly noted for wearing two Colt revolvers calibrated for the 38-40 to cartridge, butt forward for the fast draw. It didn't matter that he was ambidextrous. Bass Reeves always got the job done. When the Colts weren't pressed into service, he used his fine Winchester rifle, end quote. I found this quote from an obvious admirer, quote, He could shoot the hind leg off a contented fly sitting on a mule's ear at a hundred yards and never ruffle a hair, end quote. Author D.C. Gideon would write about Reeves for the Indian Territory Descriptive. He would recall, quote, among the numerous deputy marshals that have ridden for the Paris, Texas, Fort Smith, Arkansas, and Indian Territory courts, none have met with more hairbreadth escapes or have effected more hazardous arrests than Bass Reeves of Muskogee. Bass was a stalwart Negro, 50 years of age, weighs 180 pounds, stands 6 feet and 2 inches in his stockings, and fears nothing that moves or breathes. His long muscular arms have attached to them a pair of hands that would do credit to a giant, and they handle a revolver with the ease and grace acquired only after years of practice. Several bad men have gone to their long home or refusing to halt when commanded to by bass. End quote. Being over six feet tall, he stood out from the crowd. When he wasn't on the hunt, he dressed smartly and his boots always had a high shine. He always wanted to look respectable. He chose his horses with the same care as his clothing. He'd say, quote, when you get as big as me, a small horse is as worthless as a preacher in a whiskey joint fight. When you need him bad to help you out, he's got to stop and think about it a bit, end quote. Side note, one of the tricks he would use in capturing these outlaws would be to ride low in the saddle so he didn't appear as such a big intimidating man. But also, the closer he got to his suspect, he would trade out his big muscled horse for a smaller model so he would appear as just an average Joe. Or he'd use one of his many other disguises to get closer to his target. He was known to dress up as a preacher, a farmer, a cowboy, even a woman, or a drifter. One of his more popular stories of famed use of disguises was when Reeves was in pursuit of two young outlaws in the Red River Valley of the Chickasaw Nation. Being a large man, he could go into situations with brute force if it called for it, and, from everything I read, wasn't afraid to go that route. But sometimes a bit of cunning could get the job done and even get him a home-cooked meal. 
Reeves believed his outlaws might be using their mother's small farmhouse as their hideout, so he selected a posse and journeyed to the area and set up a base camp about 30 miles from her home. He pulled the drifter character out of his repertoire. He donned layers of tattered, dirty clothes, carefully tucking his cuffs and guns underneath. He broke the heel of one of his scuffed-up boots, grabbed a cane, and shot a couple of holes in his hat for good measure, opting for the drifter with an outlaw edge angle. Satisfied with the outward appearance, he took that 30-mile walk to get into character. He knocked on the door of the outlaw's mother. When she greeted Reeves at the door, he told her the tale of being tracked by a posse and how his feet ached. If she could find it in her heart to allow him to rest and a bite to eat, he'd be on his way by morning. I'm sure his feet really did hurt after walking 30 miles with a broken heel. Not only did she invite him in, she fed him, and then she started recruiting him. She told stories about her two sons and how they are such clever outlaws and that he should join in with them. She invited him to stay the night as she expected her boys to come home soon. Of course, he accepted. As the sun began to set, Reeves would hear a shrill whistle from the tree line, which was promptly answered by his hostess. Two men would appear on horseback as Reeves would calmly wait inside the cabin. Before too long, the two men he was after entered the house and were standing right in front of him. The outlaws and Reeves sat around the table telling tales of banditry. Reeves' stories, of course, came from those he collared in the past, but were authentic outlaw stories nonetheless. They were fast friends before they decided to turn in for the night. Plans would be made for the next adventure after a good night's rest. Reeves did not sleep, but watched for the steady breathing to indicate the boys were in a deep sleep before he rose from his own bunk and quietly cuffed the brothers' hands to each other. They didn't stir. Reeves let them sleep. After all, they had a long walk ahead of them, but... At daybreak, he kicked the brothers awake and informed them that they were now his prisoners. As Reeves started out, keeping the brothers in front of him, the mother followed along for three miles, cursing him and calling him names. I hope he at least thanked her for the meal. When the outlaw brothers were safely back at Fort Smith, along with his regular salary, Reeves had earned a $5,000 additional reward, all without a single shot fired. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. Another one of my favorite stories was when he was on the hunt for the three Brunter brothers. He caught up with them, or rather they caught up with him, and held him at gunpoint. He was not ruffled, but looked at all three men, then calmly asked, Do you know the date? 
I mean, literally, I can see this being played out on the big screen. The brothers would look at each other confused by the question and probably didn't know the answer either. When one of the brothers asked why, Reeves simply explained that he needed to know the date to put on their arrest papers. And since that was going to be today, he had to know the date. The brothers burst into laughter at his cockiness, but just the few seconds of distraction was all he needed. He pulled out both of his pistols, shot two of the brothers. Now, some accounts say that he took the third brother into custody, while others say that he clocked him a bit too hard on the skull and killed him. The warrant did say dead or alive. But I'd like to believe the third one lived on to tell the story. Art T. Burton of Lest We Forget website says, quote, When Reeves began writing for Judge Parker, the jurisdiction covered more than 75,000 square miles. The deputies from Fort Smith rode to Fort Reno, Fort Sill, and Anadarko, a round trip of more than 800 miles. Whenever a deputy marshal left Fort Smith to capture outlaws in the territory, he took with him a wagon, a cook, and usually a posseman, depending on the temperament and reputation of the outlaws he was pursuing, end quote. But accounts of Bass's habits would say that he didn't trust having other riders along. One historian claims he usually only allowed one American Indian companion instead of a second marshal or several deputies. November 19, 1909, the Muscogee, Oklahoma Times-Democrat wrote, quote, In the early days when the Indian country was overridden with outlaws, Reeves would herd into Fort Smith often single-handed bands of men charged with crimes from bootlegging to murder. He was paid fees in those days that sometimes amounted to thousands of dollars for a single trip, trips that lasted for months, end quote. The legend of Bass Reeves became so great, outlaws began to turn themselves in. In a report from 1903, one man, Jerry McIntosh, had brutally abused his wife in a drunken rage. He drug her from the bed and doused her body with coal oil and set her on fire. He left her still burning to go sleep off his drunk, and amazingly, she survived, but only for a short time, finally succumbing to her injuries. However, knowing that he was now a wanted man, he went on the run. The July 16, 1903 edition of the Admirite would print, quote, Macintosh says he dreamed last night that Deputy Marshal Reeves came upon him in the brush, and when he jumped up to run, the deputy shot and killed him. When he awoke and realized it was only a dream, he decided to come to town and give himself up immediately. End quote. In the January 2nd, 1909 edition of the Daily Admirite would print, quote, He never failed to bring in a man he went after. He would get them either dead or alive. End quote. Even if it was his own son. Back in 1902, the Admirite would print, quote, a warrant for the arrest of the younger Reeves for murdering his wife had been issued, and Marshal Bennett said that perhaps another deputy had better be sent to serve it. Old Bass was in the room and quietly said, Give me the writ. He went out and arrested his son, brought him to court and saw a jury try him, convict him, and sentence him to life imprisonment. End quote. This incident occurred late in Reeves' career. Upon delivering two prisoners to the federal jail in Muskegee, Reeves told the story how he had nearly been killed when three men he had warrants for ambushed him in the Creek Nation. He killed one and managed to get the other two to surrender. He brought his two collars in to the U.S. Marshal, Leo Bennett. Bennett would have to tell him that his own son, Benjamin Reeves, 
who went by Benny, had been charged with the murder of his wife and was now a fugitive somewhere in Indian territory. While there isn't much information of this case, it's said that the murder happened in a fit of jealous rage because she was having an open affair. No one wanted to take the warrant, but Bass Reeves knew that he might be the only chance of bringing his son in alive. So he found him and brought him in, unharmed, saying it would be the toughest of all of his warrants. Benny Reeves would be sentenced to Leavenworth Prison in Kansas at the end of the trial. He served 11 years and his sentence was commuted, freeing him from prison early for being a model prisoner, and lived out the rest of his life never committing another crime again. In 1890, Reeves was charged to go after the notorious Cherokee outlaw, Ned Christie. But that story is going to have to wait for another episode all of its own. I have been getting a few questions about offering suggestions. First of all, absolutely, yes! I love hearing your ideas of what you are curious about. I am such a research nerd, and I love learning the new stories for episodes. Second, here are some parameters so you get an idea if it's a good fit for this podcast. The topic needs to be based in America. The event needed to happen in America or played out in America. If it's about a specific person, they can be born elsewhere or died elsewhere, but the majority of their life or their contribution to the story needs to be based in America. Next, it needs to be set in the time frame prior to 1969. Yes, sometimes if the story is so compelling or so requested, I'll slip over, but I like to keep it pre-1970. It has to be something within our bag of bones context. <laughs> For example, my mother keeps asking me to do an episode of Roy Rogers, but I can't because, well, his story is just so darn happy. Around here, we settle in with the dark and creepy, tragic and horrifying. Throw in some peculiar traditions and folklore, and essentially you have the Bag of Bones podcast playlist. And finally, it must be based in fact. I put a ton of hours in research for each and every episode to make sure that I am giving you the most honest and up-to-date information for each subject. So, if I can't find a lot of detail about something, or I can't substantiate it, then I won't be able to use it. Yes, folklore can fall into a cloudy section, but usually with this topic, enough people believe it, and there is a foundational source, like where the story began, that I can stem from. And that's it! I'll post these guidelines on both my website, elizabethbougeret.com, and at the ragtagnetwork.com for easy reference. Now, before you start sending me hate mail defending Roy Rogers, I love Roy Rogers. I also love all the other topics and dates and countries. I listen to other podcasts that cover all the things that I do not. But I had to set parameters, otherwise the Bag of Bones podcast would have been all over the place and not stand out in any crowd. But now when someone asks, hey, do you know of a great history podcast? Or sure, there's a million true crime podcasts out, but what about the crime of the last century? Hopefully Bag of Bones podcast is on the tip of your tongue. Yes, your requests are most welcome. In fact, the first episodes of a new season will all be requested material. So hurry up and get yours in. (laughs) 
Every hero needs an arch nemesis. Reeves would be Jim Webb. Jim Webb would come into Reeves' radar after killing Reverend William Stewart, who owned the property next to Webb's. Reverend Stewart would set fire to burn down some of his field, as was common, and it accidentally spread across the property line. The end. A warrant went out for the arrest of Jim Webb. History tells us that Webb was a cruel and ruthless outlaw. When he took over the ranch on Spring Creek, he would beat his cowhands and ranchers needlessly to keep them afraid at all times. He was not above shooting anyone for any reason, thus the warrant. Reeves opted to take on this writ as an undercover job. Reeves took his single deputy and rode up to the property in an unassuming garb, riding low in the saddle of a small, unassuming pony to look nothing more than average. They asked the two men who were sitting on the porch if they could water their horses and have a bit of breakfast. The men, who were Jim Webb and Frank Smith, gave them permission but kept a close eye on them, tapping the handle of their pistols, making sure the two strangers know that they weren't in the mood for shenanigans. As an offer of goodwill, Reeves made a show of taking his two twelve gauges off the saddle of their horses and storing them in the corn crib while he fed the horses. Those who witnessed the event said that Reeves was amiable and chatty, never letting on that he was in the presence of such a dangerous man. As Reeves and his deputy, Floyd Wilson, sat down to breakfast, they were seated on a bench that had their backs to the window and the door. Luckily, there was a mirror that Reeves could see the two men, one being Webb, plotting. He knew his time was limited. I hope he ate faster. You're bound to be a better gunfighter with a nutritious breakfast. Reeves kept Webb in steady conversation when he returned, and when something caught Webb's attention, causing him to turn away, within that brief second, Reeves grabbed him by the throat, and, depending on whose version of the story, either puts his own gun to the outlaw's throat or uses Webb's own gun against him. Webb consented that he was caught, but apparently Floyd, who was supposed to go after Frank Smith, froze in terror. Smith, wasting no opportunity, shot at Reeves but missed. In almost an instant, a second shot rang out, and moments later, outlaw Frank Smith fell to his knees. Reeves had shot him. Reeves told his deputy to put Webb in irons, since he was steadily choking him out. They put both Webb and wounded Smith in a wagon and headed to Paris, Texas, to turn the men in. Along the way, Frank Smith did die of his wounds and was buried, but Webb was taken to jail, where he would sit and wait for a trial date for over a year. When his bonding trial came up, he was allowed out on a $17,000 bail. Needless to say, he never showed up for the court date and not only forfeited his bond, but was under warrant once again. Two years. Two years! Webb was able to skate under the radar until one day he reappeared at the ranch. Reeves and his deputy, John Cantrell, headed that way. They received some intel he was spotted in town just south of the Arbuckle Mountains hiding out at Jim Bywater's general store. Since Webb knew Reeves by sight, he sent John Cantrell in to check things out. Webb was spotted through a store window, but as Cantrell was trying to flap and flail, or whatever the secret code was supposed to be, it wasn't very secret because Webb caught on and tried to escape. As eyewitness, D.C. Gideon would report, quote, As Reeves went dashing up, Webb espied him and jumping through the open window armed with both revolver and Winchester, ran for his horse that stood about a hundred yards away, end quote. 
Reeves rode his horse between Webb and his getaway horse, forcing Webb to turn and dive into some nearby bushes, quickly turning and firing. Gideon says, quote, The first shot grazed the horn of Reeves's saddle. The second cut a button torn from his coat. The third cut off both bridle reins below his hand, allowing them to fall to the ground. As Reeves jumped from his horse, another bullet from Webb's revolver cut the brim of his hat. Reeves then fired his first shot, and before Webb could fall, had sent two Winchester balls through his body. Webb called out to Reeves to come closer, and he did, but not before having Webb toss his gun to the side. Still wary, Reeves approached the dying man with his own gun poised on his target. And this is the coolest thing. Webb reached his hand out toward Reeves and, according to several witnesses that gathered around, asked to shake the hand of Bass Reeves. He called out to those in the crowd for someone to document what he was about to say. It was recorded as such. Quote, You are a brave, brave man. I want you to accept my revolver and scabbard as a present and you must accept them. Take it, for I have killed eleven men, four of them in Indian Territory, and I expected you to make the twelfth. End quote. Bass Reeves accepted the gift and Jim Webb closed his eyes and died. Man, what a great hero-villain story. In 1907, a reporter interviewed Reeves about the shootout. In his own words, he recalled this, quote, The bravest man I ever saw was Jim Webb, a Mexican that I killed in 1884 near Sacred Heart Mission. He was a murderer. I got in between him and his horse. He stepped out into the open, 500 yards away, and commenced shooting with his Winchester. Before I could drop off my horse, his first bullet cut a button off my coat, and the second cut my bridle rein in two. I shifted my six-shooter and grabbed my Winchester and shot twice. He dropped, and when I picked him up, I found that my two bullets had struck within a half an inch of each other. He shot four times, and every time he shot, he kept running closer to me. He was 500 yards away from me when I killed him, end quote. 500 yards, 100 yards, a minor discrepancy in memory. Still a great story. Shortly after Oklahoma got its statehood in 1907, Reeves would decide to retire from marshal service at 68 years old. He would help the Muscogee police set up for two years in training the next generation before leaving the law enforcement field for good. But perhaps because it was in his blood, Bass Reeves wouldn't survive too much longer on his own. On January 12, 1910, Reeves would succumb to the debilitating Bright's disease, otherwise known as nephritis. It was a kind of thing that sneaks up on you, and before you know it's there, it's already done irreparable damage, but nearing the end, it would have probably been plaguing him as it slowly shut down his kidneys and then his heart. His obituary would read, in part, quote, Reeves was universally respected U.S. Deputy Marshal who was absolutely fearless and had known no master but duty, end quote. The Muscogee Phoenix would print on January 12, 1910, quote, Bass Reeves is dead. He passed away yesterday afternoon about three o'clock, and in a short time, news of his death had reached the federal courthouse where it recalled to the officers and clerks many incidents in the early days of the United States in which the deputy figured heroically. In the history of the early states of eastern Oklahoma, 
The name of Bass Reeves has a place in the front rank among those who cleansed out the old Indian territory of outlaws and desperados. No story of the conflict of government's officers with those outlaws can be complete without mention of the Negro who died yesterday. Reeves served under seven United States Marshals, and all of them were more than satisfied with his services. Everybody who came in contact with the Negro deputy in an official capacity had a great deal of respect for him, and at the courthouse in Muskogee one can hear stories of his devotion to the duty, his unflinching courage, and his many thrilling experiences. And although he could not write or read, he always took receipts and had his accounts in good shape. Reeves had many narrow escapes. However, in spite of all these narrow escapes and the many conflicts in which he was engaged, Reeves was never wounded. And this, notwithstanding the fact that he never fired a shot until the desperado he was trying to arrest had started the shooting. End quote. Yeah, you heard right. During his 30-plus year career, Reeves never sustained any serious injuries. One paper would write, quote, no bullet ever touched his body, end quote. He would be known to say, quote, maybe the law ain't perfect, but it's the only one we got, and without it, we got nothing, end quote. Reeves served longer than any deputy U.S. Marshal on record in Indian Territory, and during this 35-year tenure, he acquired a reputation as, quote, one of the best deputy marshals to ever work out of the Fort Smith Federal Court, end quote. At the U.S. Marshall Museum in Fort Smith, Arkansas, Reeves' coat, hat, gun, and holster are on display next to Bell Star's saddle. And in 2012, a 25-foot bronze statue of Bass Reeves sculpted by artist Harold Holden was added to Pendergraft Park in Fort Smith, Arkansas. The funding for the statue came from 100% donations and was very warmly received. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones Podcast. I love being here with you and am so happy when you reach out on the socials. If you're scrolling, stop by and say hello. You can find me on both Instagram and Facebook at Bag of Bones Podcast. And don't forget to tell a friend. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next time. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.